You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, I'm in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, if you want to follow along on your device or Bible. Do I have to say it in that order now or not quite yet? Who knows? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, put but on a stand, and to give light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Two beautiful metaphors Jesus gave describing a follower of Jesus, but they're metaphors. Some of you love metaphors. Good for you. I don't always love them. I want to know what it means. What does it look like to be salt and light, internally and externally? Some of you are wondering that also. I'm glad. We back up just a little bit to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's right. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what it looks like internally and externally. And one thing that's unique about the Beatitudes compared to some other important lists in Scripture is that they build on one another. I said last week that I think if we had the, the beautiful ways of being in the world, which is what the Beatitudes are, description, a definition by description of a follower of Jesus, generally, if we had the index cards on a table and we had to pick, like, which ones first would be like, this is religion, right? Okay, we should start with hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Really not sure about meek anyway, but it should not be third. Poor in spirit, like, that's good, but we don't want to, you know, distract people or upset them or offend them, so we shouldn't start with that. But Jesus does, and the reason is the Beatitudes build upon one another. So what happens first, though not alone, but first, is that the Holy Spirit gives us a sense of our need. We know that we can't save ourselves at all. We contribute nothing to our salvation. God pursues us and guides us to himself and then in this world. Poor in spirit, knowledge of our need. Blessed are those who mourn. We're sad. We miss opportunities for love. We hurt people. The institutions we serve in, church and state, hurts people, and that makes us sad. It doesn't crush us. It crushed Jesus. We're not sad all the time, but we are aware that we live in a broken world, and the Holy Spirit is giving us a beautiful way of being in the world, and that's mourning. The Holy Spirit gives us meekness, which is strength extended gently. Then the Holy Spirit gives us a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Then he gives us mercy, and then he gives us pure purity in heart. The macarisms build on one another, and you're like, what was that word? Getting a little bit of pushback for using this word. Not negative. Well, one was a little passive-aggressive. But, 
just being honest. But one was from my wife, and she said, I don't know what that means when you say macarism. Macarism is a transliteration, so I'm reading a Greek word literally in English. Because here's the thing, when you and I say blessed, we mean lucky and God exists. Right? Isn't that what we mean part of the time when we say blessed? And listen, that's okay with me. But that's not this word. This word has more robustness and depth and lasting power than that. When we say blessed and what we mean is kind of lucky and God really exists, we're implying it's not going to last. Did you know that I had to be grilled by a hundred other pastors before I could be, say that I was a pastor in our denomination? Some of you knew that, some of you didn't. A lot of other things had to happen too, such as seminary and written exams. And Anyway, when I was being examined um, by a good friend of mine on five different categories, Reformed faith and sacraments, heritage, the Book of Order, the English Bible, pastoral practice, we're not kidding. We want people to not only know their stuff, but be someone you can receive it from. Anyway, I was talking about my mentoring during the time when I was talking about my sense of call to ministry, what Presbyterians call internal and external call. And when I was describing it, I was mentioning the fact that I've been really well mentored throughout my life. And I used the word lucky. And the guy interviewing me is a friend, so he knew that I was about to be in trouble with these hundred pastors who were all going to be like, and so he said, Matt, you mentioned the word lucky. Do you believe in luck? And I said, what I mean is, is blessed. And in that sense, I was defining blessed as lucky, but God exists and he, it wasn't an accident, right? That's fine. I don't mind if you use the word blessed that way. I really don't. Maybe I would if I thought more about it. I do know that this is not that word. Makarioi in the Greek, blessed are, is a deeper, more robust, longer-lasting word which is why throughout this series I'm saying deeply satisfied are the pure in heart for they will see God. Flourishing are the pure in heart for they will see God. So the difference between the Beatitudes, the beautiful ways of being in the world, and say 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13, all of those pieces of love, the definition by description of love, you've heard it read in weddings, those don't build upon one another. All of those are important. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm not trying to impress you. I learned it in a song, so I always have to say all of them, or my brain starts to go like, you didn't say all of them in the song. Anyway, those don't go in order. Those are all things that the Holy Spirit is growing in a follower of Jesus. But the beautiful ways of being in the world, the Beatitudes, the order is really important. Even though I'm going out of order today, to celebrate day camp. I'll read something to you that overlaps with this, and I think you're familiar with this story because churches love to paint a picture of it literally or figuratively and put it on a wall. We, we not us, of course, but other churches. This is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13, 14, and 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And you're like, man, I knew I liked this Jesus guy. He loves kids. That's fine, but listen to this. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you find that story beautiful or naive? And hear me. 
If you find it naive, it's because of you live in this world that is fraught with brokenness, sin, death, disintegration of humanity, pain, and violence. But listen to the story again. And then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is an echo of the promise of the beautiful attitude Jesus is teaching that we're looking on today. Deeply satisfied are the pure in heart. You might have noticed from the title of the sermon, pure in heart is single-mindedness of heart. Our affections and our allegiance are entirely Jesus's. If you don't like the macarism thing, three different scholars I would point you to, W.T. Davies, Dr. Allison, and Dr. Pennington, Southern Seminary, three separate theologians that all like them. So you can read all of them and then still tell me I'm wrong. The reason I bring that up, their definition of purity is to will one thing, God's will, with all of one's being. I'll say it again, because it's not going to appear on the PowerPoint because I forget to do that. And we have such a good team. You guys are so nice to abide with me. I'm sorry about my rabbit trails. Purity of heart is to will one thing, God's will, with all of one's being. That's a theologian's definition. Mine is single-mindedness of heart. And here, here's one of the problems. When we say heart, we mean our feelings. When the Bible says heart, our feelings are included in that. But when the Bible says heart, it's talking about your intellect, your volition, your affections, your allegiances, and your feelings all together. So when I say purity of heart, it's not about you feeling like a child. It's about being given the wonderful gift of single-mindedness in your whole being. We were all childlike once in wonder, in our ability to hope, in our curiosity, but we knew at some point it wasn't going to last. And all of us, when we see that in a child, know it won't last. This is not that, though it does look like that. This is a purity of heart that isn't unwise, by the way. It has nothing to do with that. It's not like someone who's pure in heart doesn't worry about their bills anymore. It's great. This is a purity of affection and allegiance that lasts and give, gives rest to our soul. And there's no way to receive it on our own. You must understand that about Jesus' teachings. And it's so freeing. It can sound harsh, but it's actually so freeing because then later when we're troubled, we know that it was him who pursued us and will never let us go. Because even as our response to him matters, it's his pursuit. You cannot develop a pure heart. You cannot find one. You cannot take away, to use the language of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you cannot take away what you naturally had, which is a heart of stone, and take what Jesus offers, which is a heart of flesh, 
but the Holy Spirit does give it to you. And if you have told him that you trust him with your heart and with your decisions, he has done that in you and for you. Swifter way of describing this is John chapter 3, verse 3, which is like a key that unlocks the Beatitudes. Unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. There's no way to receive this double benefit. But Jesus is so much more merciful than that. I know that sounds like bad news, except God pursued you. That's actually why you're in the room. I believe quite strongly, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I believe you're in the room because God has pursued you, is pursuing you, and will continue to pursue you which makes it even sweeter news than you could do something about purity of heart. Purity of heart is a gift because our... <laughs> we have disordered hearts and affections, naturally. We worry about all sorts of things. And the beauty of the promise of purity of heart is we receive those things back, but they're rightly ordered. And you're like, what things? any other thing that you desire is given back to you but rightly ordered not idolatrously or lustfully rightly ordered I'm attempting to summarize Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 where Jesus says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you this is not giving up what you want. This is submitting that God knows what you want and need and will make you happy better than you do. When we give full allegiance to him, he gives us those things back in far greater measure than we could have imagined. And it's a wonderful gift to receive singleness of heart. Yesterday I was traveling back from uh, Presbytery, Presbytery's regional gathering of pastors, um, where we are accountable to one another and where they ask how the church is doing. And um, I was in Penn Station, and I dropped my keys on the train. And I didn't realize it until we got up to where we were going to eat lunch. We had about 90 minutes. And I checked my bag for the fifth time, and I checked my other bag. And I was like, I wonder if the train's still there. I go down there. The train's still there, but people are getting on it and moving around, and I'm like, I don't have very much time. And then a conductor goes, no, no, it's that train. And it's not going anywhere. And I'm like, oh, good. I searched the train. Couldn't find my keys. Oh, did I mention that my wallet's attached to my keys? It's because I don't want to lose them, but when I lose them, it's catastrophic. <laughs> so I talked to customer service. They send me down to another customer service. They send me to the lost and found, which is a very scary room in Penn Station. <laughs> I check in with one police station because it's a wallet and nothing. I check in with another police station, nothing. I go down and I talk to my friends and one of them says, did you pull up all the seats and look in them? I go back to the train, it's still there. And I knew exactly where I was sitting because one of the bathrooms had been out of order the whole time, so one light's on, one light's off, which was kind of a nice gift. It was easy to find where I was sitting, seriously. Pull up the seat, nothing there. Pull up the other seat cushion, nothing there. I'm down on my knees, I'm looking under the seat, what do I do because I'm a Christian? Oh, I'm on my knees, I should pray. And listen, 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 listen. Here's why I prayed. Because why wouldn't I pray? <laughs> That's it. That's your pastor's deep theological reason for praying when he's lost his wallet and keys. Not because I believe prayer is magic, though I do believe it matters and has power and causality. 
goes, why wouldn't we pray? And I really don't want this story to function as like the prayer's magical for finding your keys. But then I opened the seat again, and there was a little glimmer of light, and it was one key. There's my wallet and my keys in the seat I was not sitting in, wedged behind the cushion underneath. The reason I'm telling you that story is, I kind of think it's a good story, but also, for a few minutes, I had a stressed version of singleness of purpose, right? A lot of other things going on, right? I needed to eat. I was traveling with friends. We had another train to get on. I was thinking about my sermon. Those things seemed less important. I've lost my keys in the past, but I'm not thinking about that right now. I would like to not lose my keys in the future, but I'm not thinking about that right now. There was the gift, didn't feel like a gift, but the gift of singleness of mind. A little bit like what Jesus is talking about. Purity of heart is full allegiance and affection devoted to him. It's not childish, though it is childlike. Oftentimes we see scriptures like the Matthew chapter 19, and we're like, that's sweet that Jesus liked kids, but then he equates it to the kingdom of God because it is a wonderful gift to receive from the Holy Spirit purity of allegiance to Jesus. It gives rest to our soul. It orders our other affections correctly. Where do I see that? All over the rest of Scripture, in the way that we would deal with the Ten Commandments, in the way that we would deal with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We trust our eyes and our hands and our stuff and our minds and our prayers to Jesus, who then gives back to us all that we desired that those things represent. Deeply satisfied are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Woo, that's a good one. It's a good reward. And it is right now. Though not fully right now. See means no. If you profess faith in Jesus, the eyes of your soul, your heart in a biblical sense, your feelings, and much more than your feelings, okay? See God and know him and are known by him. What a sweet gift for today, even in the midst of a world that is so challenging to live in. This is one of the proofs that these are not separate gifts. It's not like some of us are poor in spirit, and that's helpful, and some of us are those who mourn, and right, we're with you, you know, and some of us are those who are meek, and some of us hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is for all of us. This is a description of one flourishing human being who flourishes because another man lived a perfect life and offers back to us the free gift of flourishing now and eternally. <laughs> we have an older Bible study in the church called Gray Power. Did you know that? Some uh, men and women in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and they have an encouragement for you, and it's going to sound a little trite. Partly because this encouragement is going to sound like that's the way we used to do it, and that's true, but that's not the reason I'm going to tell you. Their encouragement is get here on time. Here's why. 
You want to know what to do uh, in terms of enjoying the purity of heart Jesus purchased for you? Sing. You're like, I don't like all the songs. Sing them anyway. And I don't want that to sound heavy-handed. I want to help us enjoy what has been purchased for us, and it's called purity of heart. I don't like all the songs either. And when I'm not trying to solve some random problem that I shouldn't be solving anyway because I'm not the best at it, I stop and I sing. And that's a way that we express in perhaps a childlike, though not at all childish way, what we believe to be true about God, about the work of Christ on our behalf, about the Holy Spirit that indwells us, about our future promises, that we will sing with our hearts restored. Oh, it's a good song. So I promised them that at some point I would say something about that, and it was six months ago, and I forgot then, and I remembered this morning. I don't mind when you're late, by the way. It makes me think it was hard to get to church. But I do want to encourage you to sing. It's a childlike way of remembering what we believe to be true, speaking to our soul about what has been purchased for us, rest to our hearts, joy that transcends our circumstances, peace, fellowship with one another. When? When do we get to see God fully? Here's the thing about this particular macarism. You're like, what was that again? It's my, that's the transliteration of the Greek word. Blessed are, but it's a robust word. Deeply satisfied are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. I'm going to attempt to use an illustration to help us understand the already and the not yet of this particular promise. The fact that it's a promise that exists yesterday, today, and tomorrow and means eventually with physical eyes, you will see a physical Jesus. Yes, there's heaven and it is glorious, but you will have eyes that don't have any degeneration or glaucoma or cataract. I see about 2120 I wear contacts because glasses always slide down my face, and I know there are other glasses. It's all right. I prefer contacts. How will I see in the new heavens and new earth? You think I'll be able to see twice as far? There's still space and land and physical things in the new heavens and new earth. I wonder if I'll be able to see twice as far. What do you think? More importantly, we'll be able to see Jesus in the flesh. But until then, we're still given purity of heart today. Can you picture a seven-year-old who is at an amusement park? They are standing with their parent they feel fully safe and fully loved with the parent. They've been on the ride before and they know it's awesome. And the line is 40 minutes long and they're fine. I know. I have trouble picturing it too. <laughs> They've been on the ride before. They know it's worth waiting for. They're standing with their parent. They know they're safe and loved with their parent. The sun's out, but they have sunscreen on. And they didn't mind putting the sunscreen on because they're waiting in line. 
The line's 40 minutes, and they're fine. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is describing to you. And if you feel cynical in this moment, listen, 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 listen. If you're like, I have never felt that way, that cynicism is the Holy Spirit clearing away the fog of our doubts and former pain and circumstances which are legitimate. That is the Holy Spirit healing the parts of us that are not yet, that don't yet realize that we are pure in heart. That is a sense in you that you have a pure heart and not all of your body, mind, volition, affections, will are yet purified. That tension that you feel, the cynicism when I say that that's the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit comforting you and assuring you and teaching you to pray like a psalmist, Lord, I believe that you have purchased purity and heart for me. I never feel like it. Help. Really biblical prayer. I think. It's not in my notes. This is not lucky, and God exists. This is deeply satisfied are those who have given their affections and allegiance to Jesus because they know him and are known by him. You know that's your deepest desire, and you know that's what Jesus is talking about. Your deepest desire is to know, be known and loved. Fully known, fully loved, that's your desire as a human being. There's more to it than that, but that's the deepest desire. There's more to you than that, but that is your deepest desire. Flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and seeing God means knowing God and being known by Him. You're like, I have not ever felt known and loved by Him. That's the Holy Spirit connecting the dots between the new heart you've been given and the parts of you that are legitimately cynical, have legitimate pain, and are even now being healed by the Holy Spirit of God. You know, like that kind of sounds like good news, but I'm still angry. Pray that anger, please. Very biblical to give our full range of emotion to God, knowing that he takes it seriously and that the Holy Spirit is even now comforting you with the knowledge that he knows you and loves you. You are known by him and loved by him fully. And we're able to receive that because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And we sense it because of the Holy Spirit. I have learned that the most effective way to end a sermon is to say, would you pray with me? Because then I stop preaching. Father in heaven, would you help us? We believe your son when he says that flourishing are the pure in heart for they will see you and that that is for today and eternally and for yesterday. We believe, help our unbelief. We love and trust you, Lord. Help us to love and trust you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we believe you are among us and indwell us. Help us to sense that.
Jesus, we praise you and thank you in voice and in mind and in song for the work that you did to reconcile us to the Father. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to comfort and assure our hearts. Please do that this moment in a way that we can feel. Comfort and assure us that we are known and loved and have indeed been given pure hearts. Amen.